0: I'm sure many of you are familiar with Midas, the Midas touch. He's from Greek mythology, and he's a king that's given the opportunity by the Greek gods to have any wish granted to him. So he asks to gain a special power that anything he touches will turn to gold. And at first, it's just as amazing as he imagined it. He goes out into the countryside and he's touching rocks, and they're turning to gold in his hand. And he starts imagining the wealth and the influence that will soon be his. And he heads back to his palace, and he's touching the roses along the way, and they're all turning to gold. Then he sits down at the table to eat, and he picks up his food, and it turns to gold. He tries to drink wine, and it turns to gold in his mouth. He touches his wife's hand, not thinking, and she turns to gold. He realizes that he'll never be able to pick up his children again. What Midas thought would be the greatest gift imaginable turned out to be an incredible curse. And so he goes to the gods and he pleads with them to remove this power from him. And they comply and they tell him to wash his hands In the Pictolus River. So he goes to this river and he washes his hands, and the power transfers from him to the river. And all of the sand in the riverbed, it turns to gold. Now, this myth is tied to an actual fact. This is a real river, the Pictolus. And this real river, back in antiquity, actually had gold in it, it flowed out of a mountain. And if the current pushed gold along, and so laying in the riverbed was gold, and the people that lived along this river would go and collect the gold. And they learned to refine it, and they eventually started minting it. And this is where modern currency comes from, is from this region. And the kings of this region, they built a kingdom called Lydia. And the Lydian kings were known throughout the ancient world for their immense wealth. The most famous of these kings, King Croesus, he was used as an example of great riches. People from a few centuries BC when he was alive, all the way to about the 19th century, they would commonly use him as an example of wealth. He was a common example. They'd say phrases like Rockefeller is as rich as King Croesus. For thousands of years, long after they had died and the kingdom ceased to exist, the kingdoms, the kings of Lydia, they held this reputation of immense financial success. And much of this success literally flowed from the river of the Pectolis. The river flowed through the capital city of Lydia, and this city was called Sardis or Sardis. This is the same Sardis as our passage for today. This is the background of this city. A city so wealthy that its kings claimed to have been descended from King Midas himself. And every nation that controlled Sardis continued its legacy, whether it was the Lydians or the Persians or the Seleucids or the Romans, the greatest empires of their day, the greatest Empires, some of the greatest empires ever, they all placed Sardis in a prominent position within their empires. The reputation and prominence of the city continued even as empires rose and fell. This is the historical background of our city, and it connects in some very clear ways with the text. But before we dive into the text, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this passage would pierce our hearts. That your spirit would soften the hardness of our hearts. That it would soften the hardness of our false beliefs. That the truth would be made evident. May your word continue to impact us even after this service. I pray that we would believe And what we do would be more and more in line with the truth through your power. Amen. Right now, we're going through one of the most exciting and controversial books of the Bible, Revelation. And we've been going through these last couple of chapters and seeing these mini letters to seven different churches. And each letter at the beginning reminds us that it's from Jesus himself which you can see in the very beginning of our passage today. And as Jeremy outlined for us last week, each of these letters from Christ, they follow a similar pattern. It's this pattern of salutation, strength, sin, and solution. Firstly, a salutation. This is it's pretty straightforward. You know, people tend to start letters by saying hi. What makes these in, like, more interesting and special is that they're coming from Christ. And then secondly, you have the strength, pointing out the good qualities of the church, you know, what they're doing well. And some of the letters are almost exclusively that. It's all about how they're spiritually healthy. And there's an encouragement for them to continue to remain steadfast. But most of them have sin pointed out. How they're wrong in their views and actions. But it doesn't end there. This isn't slam poetry. This is instruction. It's, it, its purpose is to be helpful. So the letters end with the solution. What's the answer to their problem? And so these letters were meant to be read publicly to the churches. And so the members of the church in Sardis are sitting there. They're listening to this letter being read to them. And it gets to the beginning. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. It starts out reiterating Christ's authority. We could spend our whole time getting into the details of what this means. If you're interested in in that, come to the Q&A after the service or listen to past sermons. But we're looking at Christ walking among the Spirit of God and walking among uh, seven angels that are watching over these seven churches. And the point of this is that Jesus is far above us. He came down in the form of man, he was fully 100% human, and he's also fully God. And here we have a reminder to not forget that. This letter is from one with authority above all. He walks among the Spirit of God and the angels. He abides in the heavenly realm. The words he's going to say have incredible weight to them. And these chapters and these letters are getting closer and closer to Sardis geographically along the route that a messenger would take. And so they're sitting there. They're thinking, all right, it's coming up. It's coming up. And now it's their time. What's he going to say? What is he going to say? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? And so it begins with, I know your works. Two of the previous letters started with this phrase, and it was in a positive way then. But we only need to read the next sentence here to see that this case is significantly different. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. He's skipped the section on strength altogether, and he begins with their sin. This must be serious. You are dead. This obviously means spiritually. It's a spiritual death. And this is the strongest possible way to say this. You know, he doesn't say, you, know, you think you're pretty great, but actually you're not. He doesn't say, you believe you're good, but actually you're bad. No, he says, you're not even alive. You're dead. When you really get into a movie or a TV show or a book, you become really attached to what's happening. The characters in the setting become part of your world. The tension in the plot twists. They all affect you because you've become so invested. And as you reach the end of the show or the book, you start to feel this melancholy. Because on one hand, the grand finale is about to be here, like what's supposed to be the best part of the book. But on the other hand, when you finish it, you're going to have to say goodbye to these characters and the world they live in. These characters that became your friends are going to have their story come to an end on the last page or the last episode. And even though you can reread or rewatch it, you'll never have that same first time experience. And you get closer and closer to the end and there's this melancholy. And you flip to the last page or you watch the last episode and the worst thing that could happen is for the final part of the story to be that it arrives and then the characters wake up. And it was all a dream. Like what? Like just the absolute shock and disappointment when that happens. Like I just watched six seasons for this. I just read how many pages for this. You know, I spent all this time, invested all this emotion just for this all to be a dream. Like this whole meaningful story now seems worthless and pointless. Like I just wasted all this time. So how much greater would that shock be if someone said it about you? If they said, I have some, some news for you, some bad news. You think you've been awake these last few years, but actually you're asleep. This is all a dream. That's what's happening here in verse 1. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. When scripture talks about spiritual death, it means separation from God, which is described as death because God is the source of life. And so being apart from him is the worst possible situation. We cannot be spiritually alive apart from him. And the Sardesians in this church, they have the appearance of connection with God, yet it's weakened. In verse 2, they actually get some good news here. Because it makes it clear that their connection to God is not completely severed, but the wording is still showing the gravity of the situation. They're called to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. There is something there, but it's dying. And this is crippling their spiritual life. They're asleep. They're living this fantasy, this dream, that their thoughts, words, and actions are godly. And they believe that because what they're doing has gained them a positive reputation. Just like their city, and just like their past kings that were so rich that they claimed to be descendants of Midas, this church has an impressive reputation. Those looking at them are saying, like, wow, they're pretty great. You know, other people are impressed by their works, and they themselves are impressed by their works. They appear alive not just to others, but to themselves. Their own self-assessment is that they're alive, you know, and that they're doing well, but they're apparently more concerned with their reputation than who they actually are. Since others falsely look at them in a positive way, and since they falsely look at themselves in a positive way, they're asleep at the wheel of their lives. Too busy fixing their hair in the mirror to notice where they're headed. It says that their problem is their works. Their works are lacking. They have a spiritual lethargy. The problem plaguing a lot of churches in Revelation and the problem plaguing Sardis is antinomianism. It's this view that God's got it figured out and he's going to give us grace so it doesn't really matter what we do. You know we don't really need to follow any moral beliefs because ultimately God will forgive us. We can be passive in our spiritual life. Any growth in our spiritual life will happen to us. You know we're not really active in it so we can lean back in our chair, kick our feet up, put our hands behind our head. You shouldn't try to do something. God will make you want to do the right thing. So if something is difficult, then you're doing it wrong. We shouldn't worry about morals because that's not what Christianity is really about. You know, they're just hindrances and distractions from what's most important. So we shouldn't bring them up. We shouldn't teach them. We certainly shouldn't hold others to them. This view is incredibly popular in the church again today. You know, so many millennials and people of the younger generations looked at the generations before them, and they saw this hard, rule-following behavior called legalism. And looking from the outside, the problems of legalism are apparent. And so the younger generations have avoided it they've seen the older generations driving off into the ditch of legalism, watching them keep falling over and over into that ditch, just a massive pileup. Can't they see what's happening? But in trying so hard to avoid that ditch, many younger people have fallen into the other ditch of antinomianism. It's not this inevitable progression of the beliefs of history moving in the same direction. Rather, it's just a swing of the pendulum. You know, So often, one generation reacts to the previous generation and like they just believe the opposite. They see the problems of the previously popular belief and so they just swing the pendulum to the other side. I'm going to give you a very simplistic and very brief timeline of all of history. Are you ready? So... First, God created the world, and he said, morals are important, and so here are some rules to follow my moral standard. And then people rebelled, and they said, like, actually, we know better. We're going to follow our own way. You know, we're going to do what we want. So then God gave the law, and he said, like, don't you remember? I have moral standards. And so then, and at this point in the, the pendulum is on one side of people saying, you know, like, we can do whatever we want. Then, when God gives the law, people misinterpreted it. And they pushed God out of the law saying, like, oh, we can use this to make ourselves feel pretty good about ourselves and say, like, look at how good we are. And so the pendulum swung to legalism. And then Christ came and he said, I am the fulfillment of, of the law. Like you are using the law to point to yourselves, but actually not only did the law come from me, the law is pointing to me. And so then people, when they heard that, they swung the pendulum back. They said like, oh, so if the law is pointing to God, we can just throw out morals. And so they misinterpreted Christ's words as antinomianism. And then you have the epistles and like the letter today where it's, pointing out antinomianism, saying, like, no, don't you remember? God has moral standards, and he always has had moral standards. And then people, in reading these letters, got fixated on the moral standards and said, like, hey, you know, these moral standards, we can kind of use these as a way to feel pretty good about ourselves. And so then they swung the pendulum back. And then the present culture sees that problem. They say, people are just using these morals to feel better than other people, so let's just get rid of them. And then the pendulum swings back again. Again, this is a a super simplified timeline of a very long time. And it doesn't include many times when antinomianism and legalism like sprung up in different places, in different times. But throughout history, people have believed one of these false teachings in reaction to the other one. And so several times, God revealed the truth. and He pointed out in in Scripture, we see him pointing out the problems of both many times. But instead, people like to find the verses that agree with one of those sides, and they like to use it as like a slam dunk. And then rather than looking at what's actually going on. That's a lot to take in. growing up we had apple trees in our backyard and over time the apples produced by these trees got worse and worse we didn't try to solve the problem you know like by plucking the apples and saying like oh you know just the last couple of years have been some bad harvests i'm sure next year it'll be all fine we didn't go to the store and buy some apples and bring the bag up to the tree and start taping them up and be like oh wow this year, the, like, the trees are doing so well. Look at the apples that we got. Like The trees are, do, are so healthy. No, every year, we got fewer apples and sadder apples. And there's just no denying the reality of, this, of that situation. But the problem wasn't the fruit itself. That was just the sign of the deeper issue. Because the fruit comes from the tree So the fruit gives clues to the health of the tree. The trees were slowly dying. And so too with us, we need to assess our lives, which we do by evaluating our fruit. How do you spend your time? What fills your thoughts? Where do your conversations tend to go? These answers to these questions aren't the end goal. We can't stop there. You know, we could stop there. And that's one of the approaches we could take to this passage. We could say, all right, the problem is their works aren't complete, so the solution is to work harder and to work better. Then we can complete our works. But this is legalism. This is using God's morals just to puff ourselves up. So we need to ask why. Why do we do what we do? Why do we think what we think? Why do, we do, why do we say what we say? The fruit of our lives results from what we believe. It's our beliefs that are at the root of it all. And antinomianism would respond to that by saying, well, since what I believe leads to what I do, it doesn't really matter that my fruit is rotten. Because like, what's important is the, the belief. And so my belief will just passively change over time. As I believe in God more and more, I'll become more godly, so I'll just naturally improve. And this view is especially tempting when what the world believes is contrary to Scripture. Because then we can kind of sit back and passively say, like, yeah, you know, I'm part of the church, I'm a follower of Christ. And we can also have a good reputation in the world, because we're not actively, you know, we're not really trying And so, whatever kind of fits in, kind of fits. And we can be comfortable. We can be comfortable with the dissonances between Scripture and the world. Because whatever just kind of naturally we feel like doing, we can say that like, oh, well, God's at work in me, so it's okay. But this passage confronts both of these views head on. Wake up! I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. It's saying, you want to make it all about your works? Well, they're extremely lacking. And if you keep on making it all about your works... They're never going to be good enough. You want to make it all about your beliefs and about your heart? You say that since your works result from what you believe, that you, know, you don't have to worry about your works. Well, your beliefs are all screwed up. I know your works and they're incomplete. So your beliefs are incomplete. So wake up. Your beliefs need to be overhauled. Your heart needs to be overhauled. Don't just... Let your beliefs passively improve because that approach is actually moving you in the opposite direction than you think it is. You think you're gaining more life by this passive approach, but actually you're dying. One of the reasons Sardis was an important city for so long to so many empires was because it had the reputation of being an impregnable fortress. It was up in the mountains. It had solid walls and fortifications. No one could overrun it. It was invincible. But that reputation led to its fall. A few hundred years before this letter was written, the city was conquered by a surprise attack because the watchmen weren't watching. Those whose job it was to stand on the walls to look out for the enemy were caught sleeping by that very enemy because they believed that their fortress was invincible. And they learned their lesson for a few generations, but then it happened again, the same mistake. Do you believe your heart is an impregnable fortress that cannot be deceived? You say like, sure, you know, Everyone else can be deceived. But me? Come on, man. I've got it figured out. I tend to believe the right thing. I tend to do the right thing. If that's your approach, then your beliefs and actions will be found to be incomplete. You'll be caught sleeping on the walls of your heart by false teaching. Verse 3 says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You Sardesians, you think you're so great. You have this reputation of being spiritually alive, but guess what? You're not. You're sleeping. You're asleep at the wheel, and the direction you're heading is death. If you refuse to wake up, if you'd rather sleep on the wall than watch out for the enemy, then the enemy will overrun you, and then you will become the enemy. Because in the same way that a city belongs to a conquering army, the enemy will own your heart. Your sleep will turn to death. You will be my enemy. In one day, without warning, I will show up and I will prove that to you. We need to trust that God is right when Scripture convicts us. When Scripture butts heads with our beliefs. We need to take the moral claims and the warnings of Scripture seriously. We need to take seriously the warning that we can't do enough and that our works are an accurate reflection of our heart. When we had the apple trees in my backyard, I was pretty young. I was never big into forestry. I still struggle to tell most tree species apart. So I didn't have the slightest clue on how to save these trees. Now imagine if a lady had walked by our house, noticed our trees, and had walked up to me and said, you know, hi, I think I know how to help your trees. I've, you know, actually I've been an apple orchard caretaker most of my life. I have decades of experience. You know, I know the most intricate details of taking care of apple trees. And I could tell even from the street that you're, Trees are really struggling, and I know how to help them. If I would said, like, oh, no, thank you. They're my trees. I probably know better than you. That'd be pretty audacious. Yet how often do you do that with God? You might not be that blunt. We might not actually say it, but we often act that way. Like, ah, I know the Bible says that, but... I can't really say that, or, you know, even if it does say that, it can't be too important. But God isn't a master caretaker of apple orchards. He isn't someone that's studied humans and become a topic expert. He's the one who created us. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. He knows us far better than we could ever know ourselves, and not just in an abstract sense. He came down in flesh and he dwelt among us. There's no temptation common to man that was not experienced by him. On every level, he understands and he knows you. And so what he says needs to be taken seriously. If you're sitting there and you're thinking like, okay, maybe I am falling prey to antinomianism or legalism. So what do I do? What would someone like that do? How do they wake up? Well, the answer is not just to jump from one to the other, to swing the pendulum. That's been done countless times before, and it's not going to work this time. And the answer isn't to find the middle ground between the two, like try to find that perfect tuning, that perfect balance. Because there's this continuum, this sliding scale between legalism and antinomianism, And the problem is that they both focus on us. They both place us at the center of the world and our own experience. So we need to get up out of these two ditches altogether, and we need to get onto the narrow path above them. Verse 3 points, verse 3 provides us with the solution. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. We need to look at what we have received and heard. We need to look to Scripture. Scripture will show us the way. The answer to our core problem is not legalism, because our works will always be lacking. The answer to our core problem is not to trust our hearts, because they'll lead us astray. The answer to our core problem is the gospel. Whether you realize it or not, we've been talking about the gospel this whole time. The first part of the gospel is that no matter what we do or what we believe on our own, it will lead to death. But the second part is that there is hope for life. Christ died so that our lack of works and the rot of our heart would no longer keep us apart from God. He rose from the dead, defeating death so that we can experience life. We need to hold on to this teaching, we need to keep it, and we need to repent. We need to repent of viewing our works as being great enough to complete God's work in us. We need to repent of viewing our heart as being good enough to not need God's work in us. We need to hold on to the reality that he is great enough to complete God's work and that through him we can experience a total transformation of who we are now, in who one day we will be. God loves us so much that he died for us. He loves us so much he's offering us to spend eternity with him. I can't think of a greater invitation. The invitation is sitting there. It's waiting to be accepted. But are you asleep? Do you need to wake up? Waking up is a spiritual action. It's not that we just need some new knowledge, some you know, new information to tweak our thinking a little bit. This is a transformation, a work of the Spirit of God in our lives. We can't wake ourselves up. The passage you know, it provides the words, the call to action, but it requires God's Spirit working in us for us to receive the call. So if you're struggling to believe, if you're sitting there right now and you're struggling to believe but you want to believe... Pray and ask God to work in you. I'm serious. Literally, right now, pray and ask God to work in you. Don't sit back and say, ah, oh, one day. You know, one day I'll probably, probably believe. You know, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm slowly getting there. Turn to God now. Ask him to wake you up. Here, at the end of the passage, we get to the strength of this church. Verses 4 and 5. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. These verses describe people that have rejected the reputation of the world. They've said, I'm not going to tie myself to the world and what it believes and does. I'm going to tie my reputation to Christ. And those that hold to the gospel have their names written in the book of life. They don't need to worry about it being erased. This is an assurance to those that believe I will never blot his name out of the book of life. In chapters 13 and 17 of Revelation, it says that those whose names aren't in the book of life never had their names there. So those in the book of life are assured that their faith is genuine. Their name will never be erased. And this also serves as a warning to those who aren't in the book of life. It's a warning to them to hold to the gospel And repent, and it's a reminder for those whose names are in the book of life why their name is there. It is because of the gospel. And to those who do that, who to those that hold to the gospel, they will experience suffering. Our path is one of difficulty and hardship. Scripture promises Christians that they'll face suffering. But it's worth it because there's life. A difficult life leading to perfect unity with Christ is far better than an easy death that leads to separation from him. Like Sardis and the Pictolus, we will flourish spiritually when we are along the river of the Spirit of God, when we are grounded in the gospel Ultimately, Christ will be glorified. He will come back and be lifted up above all else. Those who have tied their reputation to him will be clothed in white. Their name is in the book of life. And this group of people that rejected the reputation of the world will have Christ himself testify before God the Father on their behalf. He will say, these are mine and I have redeemed them with my very own blood. There is no greater reputation than that. The comforts that come with a good worldly reputation pale in comparison to the experience of uniting with Christ for eternity. The comforts that come from a good worldly reputation pale in comparison to the experience of uniting with Christ for eternity. The apple trees in my parents' backyard aren't there anymore. We chopped them down a long time ago. You know, they weren't just no longer useful to us because they weren't bearing fruit. They're no longer meaningful to themselves. They were dead. And the only thing that makes sense was to chop them down. This doesn't need to be your fate. That's why this passage exists is because there's hope. I encourage you later today, later this week, to read Jeremiah 17. Write it down, put a note in your phone. Pray this passage. Pray the entire passage of Jeremiah 17. Pray it back to God. It applies exactly to what we're talking about. I'm just going to read two verses from it. Seven and eight. and We'll use this to, to close out the sermon. In it, there is immense, immense hope. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit.